Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. We have with us another amazing guest. We have with us today Dr. Rachel Grimaldi, who is a senior anaesthetic registrar at Royal Surrey NHS Foundation Trust, and he's also the co-founder of Cardmedic. Cardmedic is amazing. It is a multi-award winning innovative digital patient communication tool which is evolving and helped meet so many needs. I was an IT reg, um, or registrar, I was an SHO <laughs> and automatically realized how powerful it was and how amazing it is. So it's a pleasure and honor to welcome you onto the show, Rachel. How are you? Welcome. Yeah, fine. Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me. No, it's a massive pleasure. So we do want to talk about a lot of things. We want to talk about anesthetics. We want to talk about, you know, the your, the company you co-founded and amazing work you're doing. But we like we do with Scrubs. We want to take it all the way back to the very beginning mm-hmm. um, and tell us when you decided to do medicine. Was it a particular moment and kind of bring us up to present day? Yeah, absolutely. So I I wanted to be a doctor from the age of three. Um, I've oh, now wow. got three children myself <laughs> under five. And the, you know, my when my eldest and my middle are now four and three and you know they're talking about the same sorts of things so i remember being that age and knowing i always wanted to be a doctor um was born in the uk and went to live in the states uh when i was eight for eight years but out there the schooling's very different we didn't do separate science it was just a different structure so when i came back to school to do my gcse's um i was and i knew i wanted to be a doctor i was told you'll have to do sciences but you won't be able to cope because you've not done any before you won't Mm. have a clue so forget about medicine so I thought well I'm not forgetting about medicine (laughs) so um I'll figure it out and so I kind of cried my way through GCSEs um particularly the chemistry and the physics I found really tough um spent a lot of time kind of getting some extra help and just working really really hard got to do my A-levels, biology, chemistry, maths, and back when we only needed to do three and not five or whatever it is Mm -hmm. now, um, and got 0.7% off an A in one A-level and ended up missing a place at uni for medicine. So again, throughout my A-levels, I was told, um, yeah, you work really hard, but you won't make it in medicine, just do something else. And again, Mm -hmm. that was kind of like my mom said, you know, red rag to a bull. Like if someone tells you you can't do something, you're going to figure out how you can do it. So yeah, it was just a case of, I have to work really hard for this. It's something I've always wanted. Um, and then I reached a point where I was told, um, because I had offers to study medicine, but because I didn't get the grades, I was told, well, Mm. if you take a year out and you do two AS levels, completely unrelated to medicine, and you get an A's in both of them, then you can go and study medicine. And I thought, I've just been working, you know, absolutely flat out for the however many years Mm. doing GCSEs and A levels. And I just, I just need a break actually. So I went, went for a year just traveling, trying to figure stuff out. Um, And then went and studied physiology for three years at uni. Um, and again, worked really, really hard at that, um, ended up getting a first, which I was, you know, really happy with obviously, Mm -hmm. but you know, it was a huge amount of hard work. A lot of blood, sweat and tears went into that and then got a place to study graduate medicine, but spent, you know, a lot of time at medical school feeling like 
I don't deserve to be here. You know, I was told I'd never make it this far kind of thing. Um, and even, you know, a few years into being an anaesthetist, I've been in the NHS over, over a decade now. It's been a bit disjointed the last few years, having had three children in three years. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, generally it's taken, you know, really until probably being a senior reg to feel like, of course, there's loads that I don't know because I'm not a consultant yet. And, you know, I haven't been practicing for decades but there's a lot that I do know and, you know, mm. I'm very aware of my limitations and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's taken all this time to kind of feel like more confident and relaxed in the job and, you know, yeah. don't have to think about it too much. So, yeah, that's kind of where it began. Fast forward very quickly to yeah. where I am now. For the, for the people who also feel the same at med school that, oh, I don't really belong here or feel like they don't belong there. What would you go back in time and tell yourself and to those people? That's such a good question. Um, I th- I think you'd feel like if you fast forward to your, you know, SHO reg self, you'd realise that actually a lot of people feel that way and you're not alone. And a lot of people feel like they're just making it up as they go along. Of course, they're not because study and we're trained and we have the exams. But, you know, you do feel like actually, and the more senior you get in medicine, you do realize there's so much that's unknown that even the most senior people, you know, still kind of sometimes just wing it a bit, you know, they don't know, but it's just based on experience and pattern recognition. So I think it's kind of about realizing that not everyone around you knows this big secret that you're not in on, you know, everybody feels a sense of, I'm not sure that I know this or I'm, you know, confident enough or clever enough. Um, but actually it will be okay. You are, and it's just a matter, you know, medicine is all about experience and pattern recognition. And I think also a huge part of it is knowing your limitations, um, and knowing when to ask for help. And I think if you've got the combination of those two things, a bit of knowledge, some experience and knowing when to ask for help, I, you know, I think you're on to a good thing. No, definitely. So you did physiology as undergrad got yourself into grad school as a medic, finished medical school. Tell us a bit about foundation training. How was that? What was experienced? You know, it's one thing being a medical student and the next minute you're on call and you're running around like a headless chicken. Tell us about your foundation years of training. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I haven't thought about this for so long. <laughs> um, yeah, it was crazy. I was in a busy teaching hospital, turn of tertiary referral center. Um, I remember for about the first three to six months I hardly used my stethoscope I just felt like I was doing admin Mm. um I remember these crazy on calls of where I would just have pages and pages and pages of jobs (laughs) and tasks to do which I'd cross one off and add another six and just be so disheartened and the bleep would never stop going off um I did a mixture I did renal uh as my first ever no my was my first ever job was renal I think it was renal surgery I can't remember I think it was general surgery was my first surgical Mm. job actually then I went on to renal but I was on the renal rotor as an SHO and I was going I'm an F1 I've only been qualified three months Um, and (laughs) renal patients are very sick so um yeah so I kind of did a combination I did yeah general surgery renal and then uh I think it was acute medicine that was it 
And then um, F2 is a mixture of A&E and acute medicine and cardiology. Mm. So I got really good at clerking sick yeah. patients. Uh, I got yeah. quite good at cannulas because having done renal and A&E and stuff. Um, and I think F1 is definitely kind of baptism by fire and F2, you're yeah. starting to find your feet a bit. Um, but I think actually one of my biggest fears of qualifying as an F1 was, you know, the buck was going to stop with me and I'm going to have all these really sick patients out mm. of hours, no help. And, and actually you realize that as long as you do the simple things, well, mm. your ABCs, you document it clearly. Again, you know, your limitations, you ask for help early outreach are an incredible source of, you know, uh, ITU nurses that are on the wards helping. You've got mm. seniors around you actually, the F1 has very, very little responsibility. They yeah. just need to be really good at admin and yeah. just be really good at like doing the basics, ABC yeah, no. as well. So yeah, it was a hectic, exhausting couple of years, but definitely finding my feet a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was a very important tip, asking for help. I think throughout medical school, we're never really taught to ask for help. We're just studying on our own, doing the placements on our own and getting on with it. And then when you get to F1, it's a bit alien to go to turn around to the nurses and say, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. What, can mm. you tell me what, what am I supposed to be doing? Um, that's what I did on my first day. I remember turning to the um, to the head sister and saying, what am I supposed to be doing right now? And she's like, yeah, with the consultant ward round. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you learn, that's the thing. Medicine really is a team sport. Mm, you know, there yeah. are very few kind of specialties or subspecialties within medicine where you're very much kind of practicing very independently. And I think... Um, that's the beauty is it's multidisciplinary. There's so much to learn from other people. Mm. And I rely massively, like, especially <laughs> my early years on the nursing staff on the wards, they're phenomenal. And in theatres, on my ODPs and anaesthetic nurses, I'm yeah. like, just, you know, give me what you, you think yeah. and I'll go with it. Or, you yeah. know, tell me what to prescribe, that kind of thing. Because you you learn, you work so closely with people. They, learn, they trust you, you trust them, mm. you know each other what each other's experiences um and you can really you know it's such a team sport you really support each other and that's what i love about medicine no. um, is that aspect of it and that everyone has got something to bring and you've got you know everyone's got something that you can learn, no, learn definitely. From them. and i think it is one of those careers which is just amazing i wanted to touch on throughout medical school even during foundation training very few people get exposure to ICU, to anaesthetics. How did you kind of decide that was the path you wanted to go? Did you kind of do taster weeks? Um, why did you pick anaesthetics? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it's not something I ever really knew anything about. Growing up, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor, as I said, and I thought, you know, I'll be a cardiologist, or I think for some while I wanted to be a brain surgeon, and then mm. I wanted to be a pediatrician, and these mm. are kind of on my radar. But when I got to medical school, at the end of my first year, we mm. had a lecture on fluids by an anaesthetist. Mm. And I was like, this is my physiology degree in action. Ah, this is amazing. Yeah. And just from then on, I was hooked. So that summer, the end of my first year, I organized a four-week taster or elective, whatever, with anaesthetists and just fell in love with it. I'm quite an impatient person I really I don't like waiting for things I'm also really practical and hands-on and with anesthetics you give a drug you see the results yeah, you know you yeah. could do procedures lines um whatever you know whatever you want to do all sorts of different procedures intubations of course blocks um transfer really sick patients all that sort of stuff is 
very much what I love. And I also love that you're just with one patient at a time. You can be focused generally, obviously. Um, you can be focused looking after them and you're not having the distraction of 5,000 bleeps and six yeah. trillion jobs to do. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> don't have the kind of chaos of the ward rounds or all, all that sort of stuff. Um, I just loved anesthetics. So throughout medical school, when I was on my surgical placements, I'd go into the anesthetic room, you know, I'd find out which patients were having operations. I'd mm. follow them to the anesthetic room when they were, you know, obviously making sure my jobs were done and things and I was able to. Um, I would follow them to the anesthetic room, get involved, and I'd be scrubbed in in theatre, kind of peeking over the, yeah. the drapes to the top end, seeing what was going on. Um, and then just did an elective, because I did graduate medicine. We only had, I think it was four weeks for an elective. We didn't get to do yeah. the whole bit mm -hmm. that you do on the undergraduate course. Um, so went and did trauma what's trauma anesthetics and trauma surgery in Cape Town, South Africa. Oh, wow. Um, and just did a whole like mix of stuff. And then when I did my F1, F2, or even at medical school, actually did some audits involved with, mm. you know, enhanced recovery and tried yeah. to just make everything anesthetic related. I did get an anesthetics job for F1, but then it was changed last minute and I couldn't oh, do anything about it. That's a bummer. It happens all uh -huh. the time. I know. <laughs> but actually having said that, it doesn't make any difference at all because, um, you, you'll spend your whole career doing anesthetics and then you look back and you rely on your foundation training. It's like the yeah. only time you did, you know, renal yeah. or cardiology, you don't re revisit it since. So, um, so actually it doesn't make any difference to anything. It's good to get a kind of range of experiences, Absolutely. but yeah, I definitely made sure that I did anesthetic related audits and teaching mm. and anything that I, I could kind of swing to do with, you know, anesthetics, emergency medicine type stuff on yeah. my CV. I, I got on there and then applied as soon as I could for core yeah. training. No, that's great. And you kind of covered the question I was going to ask next was for lots of medical students that only get, you know, a few days or they don't get a foundation trainee job mm -hmm. as an anesthetic, SHO, F1, what are the things to do? And you kind of exemplified it throughout your training, you know, audits, taster weeks, any opportunity mm -hmm. you get to kind of follow the anesthetist around. Um, is there anything else that you would recommend to those individuals that want to get a bit of an insight into anesthetics? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think, um, well, the obvious source is the Royal College of Anesthetists website. They've got loads of information on mm. it. I th they've probably got videos and things on a day in the life of the anesthetist and what it's like to be an anesthetist and the different specialties and subspecialties you can get involved with. Um, but I would definitely recommend um, doing the taster weeks and that sort of mm. stuff. And then for each, and it will be the same, I'm sure, in other specialties in the hospital, there's always a QI or a quality improvement lead for anesthetics. Mm. And there's always, there's a load of, there's a compendium of audit recipes. You can just get involved and say, what audits have you got going on at the moment? What can I get involved with? Mm. Or what, um, another big thing actually is simulation training. Mm. So um, of course we now do a lot of it at medical school and foundation training, but throughout anesthetics and when you're a consultant, you have to do a lot of sim training. So if you can go in, even as a medical student say, can I volunteer to be a patient or can I just yeah. help you run the sim lab or something like that? Getting involved in the sim training days is, is brilliant to potentially getting involved in writing, you know, posters or mm. presentations or doing for example, you could do medical student teaching on how to do cannulas, which is applicable then to anesthetics because you yeah. tick the teaching box and you tick the cannula box, which is obviously a yeah. big part of, you know, what you, you do as an anesthetist is getting access into patients. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely there's ways that you can be creative, even if you're not doing any anesthetic placements. 
um, there are definitely ways that you can do audits on your current placement that could then be, you know, applicable to anaesthetics. No, Amazing. definitely. I want to ask you a little bit about the challenges that you faced along the way to where you are now, and then the challenge of how COVID affected all of the anaesthetists and ITU intensivists. Yes. Well, um, yeah, I mean, challenge wise, I think from foundation training, it's finding your feet, gaining your confidence, um, knowing what your your boundaries are um, and yeah, being, being confident in what you can do and confident what you can't do, knowing when to ask for help. Mm. I think it's all challenging, just the logistics of moving hospitals, um, yeah, worrying about applying for jobs. Uh, you know, I've been with my husband 20 years, um, been together throughout medical school and, you know, he's not medical at <laughs> all. And so just the kind of logistics of life, you know, juggling, yeah. living apart, living together, where are my jobs going to be? And just stressing about rotations and exams and where would I live and can we buy somewhere or, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think that's challenging. And then worrying about getting on a core training program. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest challenges throughout my training was doing the exams. Um, that was, you know, the FRCA, a pretty tough set of exams. Yeah. Um, it's notorious. So, you know, that's why I are like the smartest people in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't vouch for myself for that. But yes, there are lots of very clever anaesthetists about. I think ophthalmologists exams are possibly harder than our exams. Oh, okay. uh, but... <laughs> I think it's, I think we're up there with, with probably the hardest set of exams. Um, yeah, they were tough. They were very tough, but it was the kind of thing where, you know, I did, at that point we didn't have any children. Mm. I wanted to get my exams done. I did not want to do them more than once. I was mm-hmm. working full time and I studied 16 hours a day for months, Crazy. you know, for my wow. primary exam. It's just the way I, cause I've had it drilled in me. I'm, you know, I'm not good at exams and I'm not yeah. going to get through. So my kind of um, approach was, right, well, you've got to work 16 hours a day for 10 months. You know, if that's yeah. what the primary is, you've got different sets to take. And and I did the same for the final, um, you know, and it worked for me. It definitely would not work for everybody. But uh, that was tough because I knew, you know, I was being a graduate, a little bit older. I knew yeah. I kind of wanted to start a family at some point. You have all that kind of like in the back of your head. Um, and it's definitely you can do exams with a family. I just think it is a different dynamic and it's, I'd probably say it's harder, but <laughs> it's not impossible. So, you know, I, w- I wanted to kind of get my exams done and things like that. So I think it was um, just the kind of rotations all the time and, um, and exams uh, were probably the hardest things in training. And then that kind of just the uncertainty of not knowing where you're going to be and will you get the next rotation or the next registrar job or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yes, COVID, I think, well, I've, I was actually on mat leave. This kind of ties into card medic because yeah. I was on maternity leave uh, last year when we went out to visit my family. I used to, as I mentioned, used to live in the States, went out to visit my family um, and the flights were cancelled seven times. We couldn't get home. We, so, we tried wow. to get early. We flew out in February and tried to get back at the start of March. We're due to be out there seven weeks and it turned into nearly six months. Yeah. So actually, um, I've 
was and I, I was desperate to get home it felt very alien not being at work when I knew I had applicable skills and my colleagues and friends were there and it was looking really tough on the news but I, I we couldn't I couldn't work in the states I wasn't allowed to and we couldn't get home um, and that's when I came up with the idea for card medic but actually by the time I got back it was the end of July things had kind of calmed down a little bit and then as things started to kick off yeah. in the second wave yeah um had a chat with one of my bosses because I was due to come back at work to work in November and things are really just crazy with card medics. So she said, well, you know, why don't you, you're only, like, you're only with us, whatever it was, eight, 10 weeks before you need to rotate to your next hospital. And actually we're really well staffed. Uh, we've been through this once already. So why mm. don't you just take an OOPC, you know, out of program career break for a few weeks, get things a bit more settled with card medic. We actually also moved house in that time, um, get the kids a bit more settled and then go back to work, which is what I ended up doing. So I haven't actually worked in the first or second wave of COVID, which, mm. um, you know, I feel, I, part of me, I just feel horrible about, but then mm. the other part is I, I have actually paradoxically been working 18 hours a day, pretty much for the last year on mm. card medic, um, yeah. you know, and, and essentially, my maternity leave in a way feels a bit like it ended at when the baby was five months because I've kind of been working, albeit from home, uh, yeah. every day yeah. since. So, um, yeah, but I think, you know, I think the impact is obviously significant, having mm. got a lot of friends working in anaesthetics and ITU, and I think there's a lot of burnout, understandably, mm. unsurprisingly. Um, I think people, you know, now going back into it, people on the surface just the same as they were but I think actually there's probably a lot of anxiety not that far underneath the surface and I think people are still a bit in survival mode in a way mm. you know just you kind of make yourself go a bit numb just to carry yeah. on with stuff um yeah. and uh I think that you know that's just generally in life isn't it when there's a lot of stress going on one of the coping mechanisms is just to go a bit numb to kind yeah, of exactly. get through the days so I think there's yeah. yeah yeah exactly so I think there's I think maybe fast forward a few years and a lot of stuff will bubble kind up. Of, yeah, no, definitely agree. And it was such an awful time and you touched on it and it was during this pandemic that the idea was born behind Card Medic. So tell us mm. about that process um, and we'd kind of like to talk about how, you know, your anesthetic reg and all of a sudden you, not overnight, but very soon after became a CEO or co-founder, tell us about that process. And am I correct? It was idea to like being deployed within a handful of days. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So tell us about how it started and where we are today. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, so as I mentioned, I was in the States and I was really desperate to do something to help. And I, I spent about a week in tears just going, I've got to be back at work. This is awful. Mm. And then I was doing what I could to help people with emails and admin and stuff, but um, ended up coming across uh, an article on Sky News about mm. a patient who'd been to ITU with COVID and mm. was terrified because he couldn't understand staff through PPE. So I thought, well, what are people writing notes on a piece of paper? <laughs> we sometimes do, you know, how are people coping? So I, I, I asked around and, and people said, yeah, it's a struggle. Um, so I thought, well, what about if I basically wrote those notes essentially and put them on a website so wrote almost like scripts for conversations mm. yeah put them online on an a to z list 
uh, healthcare staff could choose, you know, visit the website, choose the topic, show the patient the screen, and they could just scroll through and read it. Uh, it might be a bit easier than constantly scribbling notes on a piece of paper. That was just my kind of concept. And that was it. And then within 72 hours, um, my husband, whose background, as I said, is not medicine. He's got experience in e-commerce and, and kind of branding and digital stuff. So he built mm. the website. So we kind of, I just wrote a load of content. He built it. 72 hours we launched. And I thought, I just shared my, the link with some yeah. friends. And here you go. Like, maybe I can do something to help. I'll keep adding stuff as we go. Mm -hmm. And then within two days, a friend said, oh, you should join Twitter, which... I was a bit skeptical of because I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not really into social media at all. Mm. Uh, anyway, I did, and then within three weeks, we had eight thousand users in fifty countries, and wow. crazy. I just was like, oh my gosh, okay, um, this has gone a bit crazy. And then we had some media coverage, um, mm. which was, you know, it's a mixture. Of course, it's really exciting, but it's 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 very kind of anxiety-inducing as well. I'm, yeah. I'm not an anxious person, but I found it very anxiety-inducing doing all this stuff and suddenly seeing you know my face on tv and in the papers mm. and stuff like that like it's all for a good reason but it just yeah, i don't know it feels very strange mm. um so yeah had some media coverage it did go a bit crazy but then it did settle down and then in the last year we've we, we've built an app in 10 days as well so all of it sort of rough and ready but um mm. uh within a year we've had uh, fifty thousand users in 120 countries and sixteen thousand app downloads so it's, it's been bonkers but the kind of bottom line to all is that um actually there's so many barriers to good communication yeah. in healthcare it's really long-standing you know mm. none of this is new it's just that the pandemic and ppe kind of together have served to massively exacerbate those issues so if it's language barriers visual impairments especially deafness as well hearing yeah. impairment people are really struggling not being able to lip read um and there's a lot of misconception around uh communicating with deaf patients as well which i've been learning about um for example the assumption that deaf patients that rely on sign language for them english as we're speaking now might be their second or third language mm. so we just assume we'll write it down on a piece of paper they'll understand it but that's not the case necessarily for a lot of people um there's also of course cognitive impairment or learning disabilities autism aphasia stroke dementia all sorts of impairments to communication and it's actually it's 20 percent of the uk population so it impacts a lot of people yeah. and i know from my daily practice that there's always at least one patient that yeah. i find difficult to Easily. communicate with Absolutely. and the realities as i'm sure you know of organizing a translator or interpreter or always having a speech and language therapist available who are phenomenal resource, but there aren't enough of them. And the same for learning disability nurses. So I think the realities of making these services available all the time when we need them, they're just not there. So there's this huge, mm -hmm. huge gap in service provision. So the feedback I was getting was this is, you know, Card Medic has got to stay around after the pandemic. It's really filling, it's kind of a one-stop communication shop. There's nothing else like it. It's filling a huge gap in service provision. So that's what the last year has been. It's been, Just, oh, right, okay, yeah, let's I'm add not. content, let's create a team, let's do, you know, <laughs> functionality. And we're still, um, we've got our first commercial product. We don't want patients and staff to have to pay for it. So yeah. we've got the, the light version, which is free, but restricted content. And then we've got subscription versions mm. for hospitals or any healthcare setting. GP, yeah. dentist, ambulance. Um, in fact, we're just 
signing our first um, customer, which is uh, Kent Surrey Sussex Air Ambulance, which is very exciting. amazing. Um, yeah, and we're make, making good progress with hospitals as well, but it can be used in any setting. That's the beauty of it. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's essentially we've got the, the the A to Z list of content, and we've it's multilingual. It's got easy read with pictures for the emergency cards. We're building out the rest. Um, uh, sign language videos and read aloud, and then an integrated translation oh, tool. I think but it's, it's been like phenomenal we've had speech and language therapists from across the uk learning disability nurses students as well they've never met all working on this voluntarily we've got had people translating people doing the sign language it's just mm. people submitting content it's been phenomenal yeah definitely and it's such a simple yeah. solution to a long-standing problem and i know that feeling of when you're just about to intubate a patient they don't really understand what you're doing and that fear across the eyes and especially with PPEs and, you know, all these individuals coming in with masks and gowns on, it must be awful. Tell us a bit more about this transition. So into entrepreneurship, being a leader, being a co-founder, now having a team of your own. We don't get taught this in med school. You definitely probably didn't get taught as a reg. Um, how was that transition? What have you learned about yourself? What skills have you picked up? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I had no, no business knowledge at all. Having, you know, my husband obviously been together for a very long time, kind of absorbed a bit through him, mm. just through daily chats about business, but definitely had no training um, and kind of came at this going, I, you know, <laughs> what do I know about running a business? So I went on um, uh, The Hill, which is a business accelerator course in mm. uh, Oxford, Oxford University Hospitals. Um, and they, they work with the university as well. And uh, they they were amazing. That was three months, I think, last summer I applied for. It's it's free. It's mm. got the, you know, phenomenal speakers, amazing faculty. And actually, my mentor from there is now my chairman. Um, oh, and he's wow. got experience in uh, selling into health, you know, selling into the NHS and also healthcare IT and all sorts of stuff. So then I after that, I did another... Um, it was an open API interoperability bootcamp, which I still struggle to know what API stands. Yeah. Uh, but my mentor on that then is now my CTO. Oh, um, but, but yeah, doing those two courses really definitely kickstarted the kind of business knowledge side of things and just kind of absorbing through having lots and lots of conversations ended up through that process, writing a business plan, um, mm. It felt a bit like after the horse had bolted because we were kind of out there doing yeah. it now, but yeah. trying to formalize it a bit. It's reversible, um, yeah. And writing a pitch deck, pitching to investors, all that sort of stuff, yeah. uh, kind of gaining those skills. And I'm now on the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program, yeah. which is, um, yeah, fab. Um, yeah. And it's kind of, we've, we've had a couple of sessions already and it's starting to very much complement the skills that I've picked up so far. I think a lot of, I suppose, what did I learn about, what have I learned about myself? It's definitely opened up a whole new part of my brain yeah. that, you know, I never <laughs> would have imagined existed. Um, it's like when you start medicine, it's a whole new language and jargon, yeah. ways of speaking about things. Um, and uh, I've, again, a lot of imposter syndrome. What, you know, what am I doing here? What do I know about this? And mm -hmm. um, all that sort of stuff. But I suppose it's kind of taught me that I can, it's still relatively early stages, but I can do this more than, mm -hmm. you know, I ever thought I would be able to. Um, 
And it's also taught me to, you know, kind of embrace the chaos and uncertainty yeah. a bit. It's mm-hmm. to kind of be a bit more comfortable in that space. And that's partly also COVID because I'm a planner. I love having a plan. I had a plan until COVID hit. <laughs> a lot of things have changed. And I think, um, you know, and running your own business, it's a lot of very long days, sleepless yeah. nights. It's a hard, you know, you, you know, you're just, just doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. It's very involved. It's a lot of time and effort. Um, and it's tough, you know, it's tough because what we really want to do with Carb Medic is uh, make it, um, we've got a Carb Medic Foundation. So we want to make it tech for good and positive social impact, yeah. reduce mm. health inequalities, improve safety, mm. all those things. Um, and so whilst it's a commercial business, we want to reinvest that into the foundation, which will subsidize Carb Medic's use abroad, but also provide grants for yeah. um, healthcare entrepreneurs and, you know, in mm. developing countries and, um, yeah. money for training programs and patient safety and human factors and all that sorts of stuff. So, um, so, but it, it definitely involves a lot of chaos and every day is very, very different. And yeah. thank heavens for my NHS salary as well. Cause I'm, you yeah. know, I'm, I love my anesthetic job and I wouldn't give it up, but, um, you know, when you're running a startup, we, we, we've had innovate UK grants. We've now had a bit of investment. But, you know, you, that none of that's difficult. guaranteed. So yeah. it's stressful if you've got mouths to feed and mortgage yeah. to pay mm. to know where you're, how you're going to pay your bills. <laughs> how how are you managing it all? So you've just come off a set of nights mm-hmm. while running this company that's growing crazily every single day that goes by. How do you manage it all um, while still staying sane at the same time? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about the same bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's really tough. I've got an amazing team, you know, my husband, yeah. co-founder, obviously, um, amazing. Uh, he's doing a lot of the childcare when I'm working. They're at nursery as well, which helps. Um, I think it's uh, it is a real juggle. I think it's yeah. important to keep the lines of communication open. Um, mm-hmm. It's not easy because there's not a, it just feels like there's not enough time to do everything. There isn't enough time, um, but I think it's about surrounding yourself with amazing people knowing that it doesn't matter if you work 24 hours a day, you're still going to have a trillion things to do. So there's mm, yes. a which you have to stop. Um, I'm saying this, I'm still really awful at following this advice, by the way. Um, but, but this is kind of what I'm trying to get myself into doing, uh, because doing, you know, the way we're doing at the moment isn't sustainable long-term, you know, there has to be mm. some kind of line drawn where yeah. start getting mm. a bit more sleep. So, um, so paradoxically, I'm going to work more, uh, yeah. do a couple of extra locums a month. So mm. we try and pay for somebody to come and help around the house to yeah. just do the chores because, mm. you know, to do everything we're doing, working 150 plus hours a week between us and the childcare and run the household. Sounds sustainable. Yeah, it, we can't do it all like uh, well, we are doing it, but at the expense of spending time with the children who are, you know, four, three and one. So um, that time's just going to go so quickly. So actually, I think it's more efficient to, you know, do a couple of extra locums and then cover yeah. Yeah. someone helping mm. around the house. And I think no. I'm hoping, uh, fingers crossed, that's going to give us some breathing space. But yeah, yeah it's it's not easy. There's no silver bullet to it. Yeah, unfortunately. no, definitely. And I think the beauty of all, I shouldn't say beauty, but I think with all great things, like, these are the sacrifices you have to make and it is kind of the, the relentless time spent on it. Mm. Um, I, I want to ask something a little bit about the fuel to the fire, basically. So um, 
doing all of this, you're, you're a trainee, senior registrar, you're now an entrepreneur solving all of these problems. And as you said, you use the word, it's stressful. There is a lot, a lot of pressure in this uh, world of entrepreneurship as well. What's the fuel to the fire? What keeps you going? What gets you jumping out of bed and putting in those 24 hours of work sometimes? What's the fuel? Yeah, that's a really good question. Oh, you guys are full of great questions. Um, <laughs> I, I you don't to say coffee. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I suppose it's a combination of things. For my anesthetics job, I just love it. And given how crazy and stressful everything else is at the moment, that feels almost a bit like a hobby because I can go to work. I'm not hassled all the time or mm. like outed out by the children who are very well-meaning, but just get excited <laughs> and want attention. Um, so, you know, I love that. It's a kind of creating order in chaos at the moment um so you know that definitely i just i love my days when i'm in theater and then my days when i'm doing card medic um i think what really drives me underpinning all of this you know i've i love the nhs i'm very passionate about the nhs our our market is way beyond the nhs the market's global um but the feeling of thinking I'm doing something that might be helping patients in the NHS and around the world. And also the reducing health inequality side, you know, that to me, alongside the foundation, which it's all bundled up in the same thing, you know, just because someone is born in a, into poverty, why should they not be able to access healthcare information in the same way? Or just because someone Mm. is born with some kind of communication barrier, challenge, disability, whatever you want to call it they have exactly the same rights as everybody else. And in fact, they need a lot more help than other people Mm -hmm. to just access the same level of information. So I think it's that that's really driving me is the kind of desire to, to, uh, to make a difference to these populations and groups of people that through no fault of their own have to experience health inequalities. It just feels completely wrong. Um, and totally unfair and that's that's what's driving me doing these ridiculously long hours Um, you know feeling like you know hopefully my children who we very much you know show them look you're so lucky for the world you live in and you've got books to read and toys to play with and a warm house and food to eat and you're so lucky and there's so many children and and grown-ups in the world who don't have that um, and I think that's, you know, that's our family ethos and that's certainly our mm. ethos at Car Medic is trying to make the world a fairer and better and healthier place, I think. No, we definitely, and I think it's such a, a noble vision and mission. And I think you, you, having met you, you seem like the perfect person to do it because yeah. um, oh, you can just see the so passion. Sweet. How did you go about kind of expanding the team? I think sometimes it's a bit difficult. You don't know what comes next. And with these things, you know, you can go fast by yourself, but you need a team to really go far. How did you go about recruiting these individuals? Was a individuals volunteering their work? How did you kind of get to this point? Because I scrolled through your website and there's so many people kind of invested in this. Um, how did it get to a couple to now a team of however many? Yeah, I think it was 20 plus now uh, and all the students. Um, yeah, it's just... I mean, it's just kind of grown very quickly, naturally. So um, the so, so as I said, that my chairman was my mentor in Oxford. My CTO yeah. is also my mentor on the other program, the Hill program in Oxford. Um, 
my lead for Carb Medic Foundation is someone I've known a very long time, a very good friend of mine from school who I happen to talk to. She's got a huge amount of experience in working with charities and um, in the developing world as well and uh, is now doing a medical anthropology degree and is just the perfect person to run the foundation. Um, the speech and language therapists and learning disability nurses who are involved have all just got in touch through Twitter. Twitter and LinkedIn have been amazing. They've really yeah, been my... Yeah. Yeah, phenomenal. Like I'm, I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or anything else. Twitter and LinkedIn have been brilliant. Yeah. And that's really where a lot of it's grown, actually, is people just getting in contact and going, can I get involved? Like Helen from Patient Safety Learning, Helen Hughes, she's the um, CEO, uh, has had a ton of experience with the World Health Organization, Equality mm. and Human Rights Commission, um, all sorts of stuff. Again, through just through Twitter, she got involved um other uh, you know medical students or junior doctors again it's just been either through word of mouth people introducing me or it's just been crazy networking just yeah. saying yes every opportunity that's come Definitely. up every meeting every opportunity every connection just everything yeah. just going yes 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 and kind of just you know scooping it all up as i'm running on this bullet train and then yeah. now i'm having to kind of filter and slow down a bit because i just don't have enough time to do everything um but I think it's, like you said, it's a really simple idea. And I think that's what sparked everyone's imagination to get yeah. involved. And also it's such a personal thing that everyone, either themselves or they know someone personally who struggled to communicate mm -hmm. when they've seen the doctor mm -hmm. or, you know, they've gone to the GP, for example, or gone to hospital or maybe had a physio appointment or whatever it might be, had some kind of healthcare interaction, have struggled. And I think it's just, that's inspired people to get in contact and offer their help and i've said yeah. yes please <laughs> we need yeah. it I so think, yeah that's how it's great yeah the beauty of the idea is even if you're not actively involved you just naturally feel invested it's one of those things mm -hmm. where like yeah i have to support um in any shape or form um which is amazing how has it kind of affected your kind of relationship with your colleagues are they supportive were there a bit of kickback and the reason i'm saying this is sometimes in certain specialties if you do things outside of that specialty they're like you know you're turning your back you know you're not giving it your 100 percent you know you might leave the nhs you might not be an anesthetic reg anymore have you had any sort of kickback like that mm. yeah that's a really good question i was really stressed like about coming back to work and thinking i haven't been at work in the first or second wave you know initially through no fault of my own and then because things you know I have been doing something to support but in a different way yeah. um because right up until now you know we've only this has all been out there for free for anybody to use yeah. and we still want it to be free but I definitely was anxious about what will people think but you know I haven't been at work but actually I've been starting at a new hospital so people haven't really known me there mm. um but people have just when I kind of if, if people ask me what I've been doing I say I've, oh, I've been on mat leave and then, you know, sometimes then might expand on that and, and talk a bit about Carb Medic. Um, people have been really, really supportive. I think quite a lot of right. people have heard about it already just through various podcasts yeah. and webinars mm. and the news and stuff. Um, but if I had to choose, I would never give up medicine. So, okay. um, mm. yeah, I, I think uh, hopefully I won't ever have to choose. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, it's being a doctor is just too ingrained in me. But um but I think, yeah, I definitely was worried that, yes, would there would, would people think exactly those kind of things? Yeah. But there's not been any of that. People have That's been great. really because they've just gone, oh, it's, it's such a good idea. And, you yeah. know, it's so simple. But also, I think 
um, in, in anaesthetics, just, just talking about anaesthetics itself, I think people are very much early adopters of new technology and mm. people are quite, um, people like innovation and kind of forward mm. thinking. It's just that kind of specialty that draws those kind of people. And we use a lot of technology in what we yeah. do every day as well. Exactly. So, you yeah. know, in surgery, of course, and lots of, lots of other specialties, but just talking about, you know, my daily practice. So mm. I'm kind of surrounded by people that do embrace digital health um, in many ways, which, which I think has helped. But yeah, it definitely yeah. was a... Definitely. W- Were you always inclined towards technology and sort of... I'm bring- so useless <laughs> <of> technology. <laughs> uh, no. No, I wasn't. I'm not like a... I'm not like, oh, give me... Well, I sort of am. Give me a pen and paper any day, I suppose. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm, I'm not a technophobe as such, but I'm definitely mm. not super tech savvy. And Mm-mm. like... You know, I kind of get a bit stressed when I look at a spreadsheet and go, oh, how do I do the sum open mm. brackets again? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I never envisaged running a digital health a business. Yeah, ever. Exactly. Yeah. What has that shown you now? Yeah. Kind of someone that probably just used tech as a consumer, as does the average person. What has it shown in terms of the potential it can do in terms of health equality, diversity, improving patient safety and whatnot. What has it kind of shown you in the future? Be- being involved in te- yeah, kind of being the like technology in the digital world and combining with the healthcare world, because um, mm. it's a bit difficult, but has that kind of opened your eyes up in terms of, okay, now there is scope for doing great good and having an impact with technology? Yeah, de- yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a huge space for digital health in improving healthcare delivery now and patient safety. Um, of course, there's a big piece around digital literacy. Um, mm. And I think there's a lot of misnomers about oh, older patients can't really access digital health. I think that's actually rubbish. Um, mm. And I think there's a huge amount of digital literacy um, in all, all age groups. Um, uh, including older populations. And I think uh, now is a great time to start implementing digital health solutions Mm. and in a way leveraging the last year of suddenly all these solutions being available, actually, you know, filtering out, okay, what's going to work, what's not going to work and starting to pick, you know, pick out what's going to to be the most useful um, going forwards. But I think actually it's fast forwarded our digital plan, five year plan Mm. um, in many ways. And I think there's so much scope for digital health and improving patient safety and quality of care massively. And that ranges from artificial intelligence to do, you know, with Uh, for example, um, in the radiology space. So interpreting scans and detecting cancers and uh, predicting Mm. cancers and all sorts of kind of predictive work through to communication, through to appointment planning, you know, making sure patients are getting an appointment at the most convenient time of day, through to investigations, managing physiotherapy remotely. I think it's just touching everywhere now in healthcare. And I think it's going to empower patients to look after their own health more um to be engaged more with healthcare services and for everything to be a lot more convenient as well because Mm. you'll be able to arrange appointments at a time that suits you you'll be able to access your own records and kind of take a bit more ownership and responsibility for things as well and in that way because you can see what's what's been documented and um and make sure that you know you've 
you, you're on top of it. Sometimes stuff can get documented. You think, oh, that's not the way I remembered it. Or that's not what happened. But now patients will be fully engaged in that. I think there's so much scope yeah, um, or improving quality of care. It's re- yeah. it's at a really exciting time. Yeah, um, but definitely. it's just now about trying to manage that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I definitely agree. And it's always nice and refreshing to see clinicians leading the forefront. Um, and it's kind of us knowing the problems, trying to figure out the solutions, and kind of implementing it, um, which is always refreshing to see. Um, I'm super conscious of time. I know we've kept you so kept you <laughs> back, and you probably need a lot of sleep. Um, But just as we wrap up, um, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to other individuals that may be wanting to do this, may have a solution, but may be scared in terms of how the world will perceive it or do I launch this um, or may have an imposter syndrome, feel that medicine isn't for them? Um, What Mm -hmm. advice would you give to those individuals? Yeah, that's a really good question. I was um, speaking at Warwick Business School on Friday uh and was asked a similar kind of question and and people were talking about they've got an idea and how do they implement it and writing a business plan and i said do you know what if i'd have known that i was going to set up a business knowing me i would have sat there and i'd have written a business plan i spent months (laughs) and months planning and got all my post-it notes you know and all my colored pens and really organized but actually i don't think that's the right way around to do it particularly my best advice would be just do it just crack on and do it have an idea but just get started Mm. because the product that you start with won't be the product you end up with you know we've got so much to do to carb medic we are refining we're still like (laughs) you know building our kind of first we're still refining our first release really and there's there's always going to be refinements and improvements to make and i think if you just sit there and start writing your business plan your business plan is a live document it's going to be changed all the time um some people never write a business plan they just write a pitch deck and expand upon it a bit so (laughs) i just think don't don't let you don't hold yourself back by Mm. these things get on and do it but make sure that whatever it is that you come up with is a genuine solution to a genuine problem not a solution looking for a problem because Mm you won't it won't succeed that way thank you and i think that's sound advice and it's tremendous work you're doing you really are doing something amazing and it's really nice to see someone like yourself leading it um i wish you all the best for the future i'm super excited to see what you guys come up with next uh but i just want to thank you again and thank the listeners um it really has been a pleasure